Welcome to No Small Thing, everybody. And this is foregoing the cold open that we usually do, which is sort of a goofy thing. But we're starting with more of an introduction to our episode this week. Welcome to No Small Thing. Welcome to this episode. Welcome to this episode. This episode is on James Cone. And we're going to tell you a little bit about him in a second. But um, so this is a No Small Thing story, actually. No Small Thing started in May of last year, I think, right? May? May, yeah, that's yeah. when we had our first episode. Now we're now this is our twenty seventh episode, and uh, I have started a practice about three years ago where I have a goal of reading an author a year. So I pick an author. Oh, I didn't and, know it was just it, three years ago you started yeah. this. Wow. This is my fourth. Wow. Okay. So, um, well, it was it was kind of a post seminary thing. I was mm. like, I need I'm, nobody's assigning me books anymore. What do I do? Mm. And this was a something my old senior pastor did. Oh, okay. That's smart. So uh, you pick an author and then you read, try to read all their books. In one year. <laughs> In one year. Yeah. Um, so I, I was looking for somebody to read last year, and uh, I was trying to think of a black theologian in particular, and I didn't know, unfortunately, this was very exposing, of any black theologians. Mm-hmm. I, I, knew, mm-hmm. I knew of a few currently, but none that had written like a lifetime of work. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. So I asked Macy. And she suggested James Cone. Yeah. So this is a, a before we were even no small thing. Oh, we were doing we were no small pals. thing things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then here we are a year later doing an episode on an it. An episode on him because yeah. you chose him as Oh, so I chose author. James Cone and I read all his books. How's it been? <laughs> um, I think with James Cone, he's one of the most provocative thinkers, Christian writers. He's, he's a theologian. We're going to read a little bit of a bio of him mm-hmm. in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is, is a harsh writer, mm-hmm. especially to white people. And so initially it really, I, I was really taken aback and I'm not used to the way he talks. And I was sort of arguing him in my, with him in my brain mm-hmm. and thinking mm-hmm. he was a little too harsh. Mm-hmm. But by the end of the year, I think I've gotten so used to him, which yeah. is, I think the whole point. Yeah. And the, his harshness doesn't even seem harsh anymore. You understand it. Yeah. And you can think yeah. the way he thinks in some sense. Yeah, which is the like. whole point, which is yeah. the whole point. Yeah. And so um, I, I, what, what, we'll, we'll end up talking a lot about James Cone in this episode. But um, before we do anything else, I might talk a little bit more about James Cone or the journey that I had with him this year. But um, before that, we were thinking Macy could read his, yeah. a description of his life. And uh, there's just like a little brief description of him on Wikipedia. Just a Wikipedia And I, and I, and I want to read it just so we get it right. I don't want to just ramble on about who I think James Cone is. I want to get mm-hmm. the dates right. And so I, I think it says it well. Okay. Yeah. So James Hall Cone. Um, was an American theologian best known for his advocacy of black theology and black liberation theology. His 1969 book, Black Theology and Black Power, provided a new way to comprehensively define the distinctiveness of theology in the black church. Well, Cohn's work was influential from the time of the book's publication, and his work remains influential today. His work has been both utilized and critiqued inside and outside the African-American theological community. He was the Charles Augustus Briggs Distinguished Professor of Systematic Theology at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York until his death. And James Cone died um, this year, April of this year. Um, and I was already reading him, which is interesting. You were reading him, yeah. yeah. So it also felt fitting that we would do this episode at the end of 2018. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. really interesting. A very influential thinker, important guy in terms of um, 
like culture, mm-hmm. Christian culture, black culture in America. You had a lot to say. Yeah, so I guess I'm trying. We're trying to tease this episode. I, I want I want everybody to be interested in James Cone. <laughs> so I yeah. want you to keep listening. But I I he's a theologian taught at Union Theological Seminary. But this isn't just like a Christian episode. His his mm-hmm. thought and work deals with our our society. It deals mm-hmm. with politics. It deals with the way we talk to each other. It deals with the way we think about people. I was first introduced yeah. to him in my Christianity and society class. Oh, society. Yeah, yeah. and then where we were talking about theologians who engaged with society. Mm-hmm. There it is. James. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're just trying to give you a little bit of a taste of what he's all about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to read a little section from his book called uh, God of the Oppressed. And this was one of his most important and significant books. And this is, this is just an example of how he thinks Mm -hmm. and the things he was saying. He says the difference in the form of black and white religious thought is on the one hand, sociological since blacks were slaves and had to work from sunup to nightfall. They did not have time for the art of philosophical and theological discourse. They therefore did not know about the systems of Augustine, Calvin or Edwards. And if Ernst Bloch is correct in his contention that need is the mother of thought, then it can be said that black slaves did not need to know about Anselm's ontological argument or Descartes or Kant. Such were their philosophical and theological problems as defined by their social reality. Blacks did not ask whether God existed or whether divine existence could be rationally demonstrated. Divine existence was taken for granted because God was the point of the departure of their faith. The divine question which they addressed was whether or not God was with them in their struggle for liberation. Wow. So that's an example of... Um, that's a great example. Uh, him asking different questions than most white theologians and exposing sort of our neglect of our past. So in this episode, we interview Tally Harrison, and he directed uh, the Center for Racial Reconciliation at SPU, which we, as we've established in this podcast before, that's where Macy and I went to undergrad. Yeah. And uh, I have some background with him because he did a lot of work with me at my old church, at Bethany Presbyterian Church, teaching our kids about racial reconciliation. And now he works at the Seattle Presbytery and he introduces himself at the very beginning and talks about how he's doing some work with SPU with physics now. I don't know what he was talking about. That was wild, but cool. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it was a really fun interview. What did you think? Yeah, I think it was a really cool interview. Tally's a very um, wise voice. Mm -hmm. Um, Had a lot of great things to say. He brought a lot of heat in terms of the interview. I was super encouraged by his words and also challenged by his words. And he loves James Cone. Yeah. Um, it was super well. clear. Been impacted. You know, um, one of the things he said that I thought was so interesting is, is this idea that I was convicted by that I didn't know who James Cone was leading him to this year. And mm-hmm. I had been to seminary, studied theology in my undergrad, grew up, grew up a Christian. Well, Tally said he didn't even know about James Cone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Tally's black. So... Yeah. He, he, so that made me feel uh, something. I don't know what it made me feel. <laughs> yeah, it intrigued. was just interesting. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of people don't know about James Cone. It's not like white people don't, black people do. Yeah. He, yeah. There's uh, only certain probably realms that are reading yeah. him. Um, yeah. But an important voice nonetheless. An important voice. Hence why we're talking about. And him. we want to say this is this feels like a we we talked last week about this these pivots. Every week these we're making big a pivot, pivots. and it seems like it's part of our no small thing vibe to vacillate back and forth in big hectic ways. <laughs> Last week you did Joanna Newsom. This week it's James Cone. Next week, just so you know, we're going to talk about fashion. Or style. So that's a really strange pivot a from James Cone to fashion. <laughs> uh, but that's what we're about. 
yeah. in this in this podcast. We so we're we're trying to attract people that are here for something like that. Yeah, and so this may be like <laughs> an interesting kind of conversation if you're not like super like in Christian theological jargon. Yeah. But we hope that it's not too intimidating and that it could maybe just be like a f- a fun starter conversation or a way to listen into a different kind of conversation cuz James Gunn's voice regardless of if you are like really into theology, his voice matters in terms of um, culture and the way we can think about our world yeah. today. So I think it's a, I don't know. He's an important voice. An important I mean, that's voice. one of the things we established. The no reason small I, voice. I mean, one of my takeaways is, is this sounds extreme, but I may not read any more white theologians Yeah, because I've read them my whole life. Like, I don't know if I need it anymore. Over it. I, I need some other theologians and other voices in my life. And mm-hmm. this is a start. And so maybe, maybe, maybe you're not going to be as extreme as me in that sense. You can go ahead and, <laughs> white thinkers, but uh, I definitely need more people like James Cohn in my life. So maybe this will just be a start for some of you. So I'll just say a few, one more little thing about this episode. We have a rejuvenation, and what we think we're going to do, I'm pretty sure, is we're going to also, as we said, uh, James Cohn died this year, and Macy and I last week watched um, Cornel, West. Cornel West give a speech at his funeral, which is really inspiring and moving, mm-hmm. and it's eight minutes, so it's you, you can sit and listen to that. It's not a big, long 30-minute speech. Yeah. And so we're going we're gonna to insert that at the end of this episode. Um, and I also just want to say in terms of Tally's interview, you know, at the beginning, we're just kind of getting to know Tally. We, we want you to know Tally before we start talking about James Cohn, who, mm-hmm. are, who we're interviewing. But later in the episode, uh, basically after the rejuvenation, we really start getting into some of the meaty content of James Cohn's the work. Meat. And that's when it gets really interesting. Yeah. So the whole thing is interesting. I'm not telling you to skip to the end or go past Reuben's rejuvenation, but stick around, I guess. But stick, yeah, stick around to the end. So in front of me, I have this, um, I have James Cone's memoir, which came out after he passed away this year. Isn't that interesting? But he was working on it before he died. And Cornell West, who's also a famous black theologian, philosopher, thinker, taught at Princeton, Harvard, and Union, where James Cone taught. Um, wrote the foreword to his memoir after James Cone died. And so I think it's a great little intro teaser to James Cone. Yeah, and Hopefully the this will wet adapted your from his funeral speech, I think. I don't know. I think it says it at the end. Could be. Yep. Uh, editor's note, James H. Cone died April 28th, soon after completing his memoir. This reflection is adapted from the tribute delivered. So this is adapted. You're going to get two different versions, essentially. Bookended. <laughs> Cornell West. Wow. Yeah. So he says, my, my dear brother, James Cone, words fail. Any language falls short. Yes, he was a world historical figure in contemporary theology. No, about, no doubt about that. A towering prophetic figure engaging in his mighty critiques and indictment of contemporary Christendom from the vantage point of the least of these. No doubt about that. Hmm. But I think he would want us to view him through the lens of the cross and the blood at the foot of the cross. So I want to begin with an acknowledgement that James Cone was an exemplary figure in a tradition of a people who have been traumatized for 400 years but taught the world so much about healing, terrorized for 400 years and taught the world so much about freedom, hated for 400 years and taught the world so much about love and how to love. Hmm. James Cone was a love warrior with an intellectual twist rooted in gut bucket Jim Crow, Arkansas, ended up in the top of the theological world but was never seduced by the idols of the world. James Cone was not just an academic theologian. He lived life or death. His theology was grounded in the cry of black blood, the wailing of black suffering, the moans and groans of black hurt and black pain. 
and somehow trying to convince us not to just have courage, but fortitude. A Nazi soldier can be courageous and still be a thug. Fortitude is courage connected to magnanimity and greatness of character. That is what we are looking at when we see James Cone. He was a great man based on biblical criteria. He served, he sacrificed for the least of these. He tried to hold up the blood-stained banner with a level of spiritual nobility, moral royalty already enacted by his parents, already enacted by the best of his church. And by the time he began to interact with the vanilla brothers and sisters, he was misunderstood and was misconstrued. But just because he was mad and enraged, because he was focusing on sin that didn't make him a hater, he was a charitable Christian, He hated the sin, but still tried to love the sinner. And the problem is so easy. Others look at black folks and ask, how come they're so mad? How come they're so angry? Well, if your children were treated that way, if your children were going to jail, your children were receiving a decrepit education, you'd be upset too. James Cone said, let me tell you something right now. I'm not one of those thinkers who is afraid and scared and intimidated. I'm going to tell you the truth, and I'm going to talk about suffering of black people. He concludes by saying, go back to the cross. That's what he was telling us to do. That's what it is to be on fire. He's still on fire. His spirit will be strong. It will be transfigured. It will be transformed. We will never forget our brother. Let's live our lives in such a way that we remain in the same tradition as brother James Cone. So that's, that's... Cornell West thing. Well, you, if you, if you want to stick around, you can hear it in his own words at the end because mm-hmm. he's, he is a preacher too. So oh, yes. hearing that through Cornell West. Uh, voice is really profound. Puts a fire in you. So we'll put it at the end. But uh, aside from that, we'll get to the episode. Uh, This is our episode where we're talking about James Cone with our friend, Tally Harrison. Hey everybody, welcome to No Small Thing. I'm Scott. And I'm Macy, and this is episode 27. Yep. Episode, episode 27. 27. And tonight our topic is James Cone, but we're also, this is an interview episode. Yeah. Um, with Tally Harrison. Yep. Tonight we've got Tally Harrison. <laughs> and he's here in the house. <laughs> in the house. In the house. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think it's going to be sort of discussing James Cone with t- Tally and um, getting your perspective on that. But just talking about the work you do at SPU and with Seattle Presbytery and all over. Because you kind of do a lot of freelance <laughs> stuff too, I think, right? Is that what they call that? I don't know. I don't know freelance. I called it ministry for a while. Ministry. Mm. That's another good way of saying it. Yeah. It's freelance work or is it ministry? Yeah, so Tally, could you describe uh, what, what exactly you teach at SPU and your involvement in Seattle Presbytery, all that? Yeah, well, uh, right now at SPU, I um, am doing physics and equity research with a physics research group. Hmm. Wow. So that's... Okay, (laughs) that's a surprise. That's a curveball. Yeah, no, we have uh, a National Science Foundation grant. Wow. So I work with uh, some some incredible um, physics educators wow also Mm. researchers (laughs) and what's so what's been your background at upc what have you i mean upc UPC. that's a a church i work at (laughs) spu all these acronyms yeah well Uh, i started as a campus pastor for urban ministries yeah Mm. then john perkins came along and asked me along with the president of the university if i would develop the john perkins center for reconciliation studies Mm. 
Uh, I did that for a really long time. <laughs> yes. Uh, Would you say about 10 years? Uh, total, yeah. uh, let's see, 14 years. Okay. Wow. I was director of the mm-hmm. non-Perkins wow. Center. And then last summer, I resigned that position okay. uh, to begin working with the Seattle Presbytery and start working on as the director of reconciliation yeah. wow. and community mm. engagement. I did not know that. Yeah, that's so cool. Wow. Yeah, so yeah, I, I guess for everybody, it, for their for everybody's uh, knowledge and center of gravity here, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, Macy and I both went to SPU. Yeah, mm-hmm. I worked at a church called Bethany Presbyterian Church, and uh, John Perkins is uh, an amazing theologian, thinker, leader who lives in Mississippi. And SPU started a John Perkins Center, and Tally headed that up. And uh, there's just all sorts of different connections. Uh, mm-hmm. But but a lot of these things, my connection to Tally, and you probably don't remember this, I started working as the youth pastor at Bethany Presbyterian Church. Yeah, yeah. And they had already set up a meeting with you. And right. you came and gave a lecture. Right. And I was like, I didn't know who you were. I didn't know what the Perkins Center was. I didn't know John Perkins. I'd never heard... Uh, the phrase white privilege before is right. like all sorts of interesting things. Um, but that's where all this is sort of tying together. Hmm. And, and like I said, I spent this year reading James Cone, who I hadn't even heard about until this year, until Macy suggested that I read wow. James Cone. I know. Which is, Macy. Macy did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had to read James Cone in my classes. Yeah. So, yeah. So SPU made some SPU. improvements. Yeah. I read there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so how did you get involved with the John Perkins Center? You were already wor- working at SPU, and then they asked you to head this up. Yeah, um, I've known about John Perkins obviously for some time, and then uh, there was a trip down to Jackson, Mississippi, mm-hmm. with a sprint team. Hmm. Yep. And uh, I got to hang out with the family, uh, John Perkins family, and hmm. uh, we connected, uh, and we've been family ever since. Hmm. Hmm. And so at some point, John's advisory board um, asked if I would be interested in leading the center. At that time, the center was, uh, it was in discussion for the center to actually be in Jackson, Mississippi. Hmm. And uh, John decided uh, that it it would be um, great to have it at SPU. Mm -hmm. And the president, Dr. Eaton, uh, loved the idea and jumped on the opportunity to have it at SBU. I bet, yeah. And um, yeah, so we started there. That's yeah, so crazy. I remember um, this is this is such a random way to kind of start this conversation, but <laughs> it stood out to me as we're going back almost 15 years now into a time where I was so terribly ignorant, <laughs> even after graduating from SPU. And I remember for some reason, the first the first thing I remember about you coming and talking to us, so, so I was obviously the youth pastor, but you were talking to our kids. Mm-hmm. And we were, you were sort of part of preparing us for this sure. trip to Mississippi. Yeah, I remember mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this this is something that I think comes up in James Cone, Cone's work, and it seems so small, but I remember you saying at the time, you as, as somebody that works in a university here in Seattle, you typically are mostly surrounded by white folks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was very helpful for you to get back in your downtime to the black community. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember our kids kind of being confused by that. Like, what, why, why would he need to do that? And, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, it was so, it was such, a, it seemed like such an important point that you were making in terms of uh, getting back in touch with who you are. Um, mm. I don't know. Would you mind yeah. saying a little bit more well, about that? I would that? say staying in yeah. touch. Right? Yeah, staying in touch, and yeah. Part of 
even when I came to SPU, I actually went to black pastors in the community and asked permission hmm. to hmm. take this role at SPU wow. because hmm. it was taking me from directly working with kids in my community and, and churches in our community where um, some of our you know, our talent, our resources, our capacity needs to stay in the community. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and so I, I asked permission, mm. um, you know, and that's um, about being able to um, stay connected to one's community, one's mm-hmm. identity. In my community, I'm not um, kind of walking against the grain. When I'm here, I'm walking against the, against the grain, mm. right? I'm, mm. My body represents resistance to mm. so many. And early on in my time at SPU, just showing up on campus was an act of resistance. Mm. Wow. Just being in a black male in a leadership role is an act of resistance. I don't have to say anything. I just have to be, mm. right? And it's an act of resistance. Why I'm not considered normal in that mm. role. Um, and when one is viewed as abnormal consistently, then it, it does something to one's psyche and one's spirit and one's soul, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, staying connected to my community is soul work, mm-hmm. right? Staying connected to the narrative um, that I grew up with because I grew up with a healthy black family. Mm-hmm. I grew up with a healthy relationship with my father. Yeah. I have um, uncles and aunts who are wonderful, educated people. It was a funny story in my early time here <coughs> at SPU Oh, I remember. It was uh, 2006, 2007. Um, and everyone was talking about this senator who had given this amazing speech and now was maybe running for president. Oh. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right? And they, who is they, it? One yeah. of the leaders at SVU stopped me and said, have you ever met such an articulate black man? Oh. Mm. And I thought, hmm, <laughs> let's see, my dad, yeah. my uncle, my grandfather, my other uncle, my neighbor, my friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. have. I have. <laughs> yeah. And that's so sad that you even have to clarify that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow, just you showing up was an act of resistance. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. again, like now I now I sort of have the lens to see that, but at the time I would have had no way of appreciating that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you essentially started a journey at SPU and yeah. I, I guess the question that's bubbling up for me is, you know, just the just your existence there was some form of resistance. Did you mm-hmm. did you experience questions or pushback or awkwardness beyond like silly questions like that about Barack Obama or Oh every day. Oh, oh, yeah, geez. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It was it was the norm. <laughs> oh gosh. That's too bad. <laughs> it was the norm. Yeah. Uh, I mean tons of stories. And tons of memorable moments of um, folks crying in my white folks crying in my office, mm. going, "How come no one ever told me?" Ah, mm. uh, right, right. Um, students coming in the office, going, "Your office is a place of refuge." Mm. Right. Mm. Um, having relationships with students uh, down through the years who are involved now in some critical places all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, doing amazing work in, in hard places, mm-hmm. but they grew up in largely white spaces, mm-hmm. and their transformation was their time mm-hmm. with us in the center. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, though there are a lot of hard moments, uh, there were a lot of great moments too, yeah. long lasting moments. Um, one of my first ever leaders 
way back in 2001. We now attend the same church. Awesome. <laughs> and she's an amazing, incredible educator and preacher and had Fannie Lou Hamer huh. in her sermon on wow. a few Sundays hmm. ago. Hmm. Wow. Right. So here's yeah. this white young woman talking about Fannie Lou Hamer as yeah. an mm. example in scripture. Oh, I was mm. like, that's yeah, so good. that's dope right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what church is that? That's Lake Burien Presbyterian. Oh, Lake Burien. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. Well, I'm just, I'm curious now, what do you do for the Seattle Presbytery? Yeah. Yeah. So what does that mean? <laughs> so we have actually, I've been working with Presbyterian churches for some time mm-hmm. and had done a project in New Jersey Presbytery hmm. wow. where I basically fly back and forth and helping them do some work around church redevelopment. Hmm. Um, and it comes out of some data around the basically the diminishment of churches. So churches decline, church decline. Hmm. Um, the number of churches uh, where the congregations are basically elderly white folks. And we had done some work uh, both in New Jersey and in Seattle at Lake Berrien um, around kind of reconciliation mm-hmm. and church redevelopment and church transformation. Mm-hmm. And um, I, the presbytery um, had asked me to do several projects. And so uh, when I was discussing my future and feeling like my time had come to an end at SPU, they quickly... <laughs> Uh, offered me an opportunity to continue working directly with their congregations mm-hmm. uh, around church redevelopment um, and ministry redevelopment. Mm. And how do we do some of the critical work around seeing uh, ministries look differently over the next 10 to 15 years yeah. um, as neighborhoods brown and black, mm. you know, that we do something um, more critical and more relevant. Mm. Uh, and so reconciliation theologically is at the center of that work. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I decided this was a wonderful opportunity to do ministry Mm -hmm. along with my ministry with Lake Burien and several other ministry opportunities. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just felt like this was a great platform for that kind of work. That's incredible. So, uh, um, Macy, what was it like for you? Because you had a similar experience to me, but I think SPU had come along a little further than when I was there. So you had professors that weren't there when I was there, like Dr. Brenda yeah. and Dr. Bantam. Yeah. And so it like that. Yeah. So by the time I went to SPU, it was kind of like a rude awakening for you, right? It was. A, yeah. It was yeah. a little bit of a rude awakening <laughs> for me. Um, by the time I went to SPU, the reconciliation center had been around for probably 15 years. Um, I graduated two years ago. Um, but I, took a class intro to reconciliation because it was suggested everyone said I should take it and I didn't really know what I was walking into and that most students <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and that class just kind of deconstructed all of my understanding of Christianity because I had been so uh just single-minded and what I'd been the communities that had shared Christ with me and I'd come from one single culture and hadn't really seen outside that and so mm. That class really deconstructed that and helped to, um, I don't know, give me tools and the ability to see uh, outside of my own, my what I had grown up with for so long, what I thought Christianity was. Um, yeah, so it was a really transformation, transformational class, the reconciliation class, and then I minored in it 
after that, I was like, oh my gosh, like I have a lot of work to do. Um, That class was like, oh, I know so little. I need to learn so much. And I think um, it just taught me to be a better listener of stories, I would say. It's so, like an SPU mm-hmm. testament. I know, it really is. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that's why I'm, I'm so curious. It's like, so SPU has obviously made headway, and they're, just so everybody knows, I, I, I don't know who's listening to this sometimes. It's like, <laughs> SPU is the school we went to. It's the school Tally taught at. It's a <laughs> it's private Christian school here in Seattle. <laughs> right, right. Um, but I think so part, of, part of what I'm naming is complicated is that like probably when I first got there, especially the theology department was primarily taught almost exclusively by white men. Like maybe one woman pastor, I mean, the professor. Yeah. So not very diverse. No, no. I mean, I made some headway, I think. Yeah. I think (laughs) part of the, part of the work we did was to, uh, when I started, it was roughly 6%, Hmm. um, students of color diversity was about 6%. Uh, and by the time, well, within a short amount of time, 2010, we started to see significant transition in Hmm. that. And by 2017, we're at. 36, 38, 39%. So. Wow, that's great. <sighs> okay, what I'm going to say is, I think this is this is an intro, but it's the first <laughs> part of our discussion. When we come back, I think we'll start... Uh, Breaking talk, out, talking James about Cone? Talking about reconciliation, James Cone, and, and I'm going to try to lean into some awkward conversations. This is an awkward thing to talk about sometimes, you know, and it shouldn't be, but it is. Um, but that's so we'll start. We'll start a little bit more and come back. We'll try to... Uh, bring up some of what James Cone was all about and we'll get Tally's thoughts on that. Okay, everybody, we're back. Okay, so I'm going to try to intro some of the, the things I'd like to discuss with Tally in regards to James Cone, racial reconciliation. Um, Black liberation theology. Black liberation <laughs> theology. Just so everybody knows who's listening at home, Tally is black. And he's here. <laughs> That's a fact. Black on black on black. Yeah. On black. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think... Uh, Okay, so spending this year reading James Cone, I think one of the things that struck me is um, having done a lot of racial reconciliation stuff with John Perkins, who Mm. would be another great episode someday, and teaching racial reconciliation to high school students. Um, I think one of the things that struck me about James Cone, even after all of this learning and study, was um, the way he sort of didn't pull any punches with the Mm. white community. Mm -hmm. Um, and as somebody that grew up, and I think this is actually representative of most Americans, um, being taught about Martin Luther King Jr., especially in the Christian community, but that's just an American icon in general. Um, there's this emphasis on, um, nonviolence, peace at all costs, uh, the beloved community and, and a very appropriate, uh, Christian emphasis. And then Malcolm X was somebody that James Cone also liked to talk about and build sure. up and emphasize. And he had a completely different way of talking than 
Martin Luther King Jr. So I think one of the things that I was so struck by and it was very refreshing mm-hmm. when I was reading James Cone was the fact that he's a Christian teaching at Union Theological Seminary who really was harsh with the Christian community mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of how, um, well, not the Christian community necessarily, but white Christians. Word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of how uh, we have treated um, black folks in our country and especially in the Christian community. Um, so I, I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you, Tally, is I know you don't, you can't possibly answer for white theologians from the beginning of time to now, but like has somebody that has worked in the university, why do you think writers and thinkers and theologians like James Cone often get so passed over or unacknowledged. So, so like, uh, let me just say that before my question, I'm a, I'm, an, I'm a master's of divinity graduate from Fuller seminary, went to SPU and up until this year, I'd never heard of James Cone. So, uh, that, that's my question sometimes of like, how, how, how does something like that happen? Yeah. Why, yeah, why, yeah. why do you think even in higher education, these the, writers and thinkers like this get passed over? Yeah, well, let me let me make some distinction, Please. right? Um, you know, I think Cohn would say Martin Luther King and Malcolm X are two um, poles within the black body, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Within the black experience are these two poles. Yes. Uh, and though I may be capable, or let's say demonstrate in my work with the Presbyterian Church or with SPU, show a very Martin Luther King orientation. Don't get it twisted, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Those are Malcolm X and me. Yes. Mm-hmm. And there are times where I have to demonstrate that, yeah, it's peace, but it's gonna it's at peace with me telling you about yourself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's what James Cone represents, is this, this, this holy disturbance mm-hmm. oh, yes. mm-hmm. to white existence. Mm-hmm. And... I first learned about James Cone not get in seminary, getting mm. my master's degree, not mm. in my undergraduate work, obviously, at the University of Washington. But I picked James Cone up as um, it through my relationship with Pastor Lena Thompson mm. Mm. early on mm. when we were um, working with at-risk youth through a program called Vision Youth. Wow! Mm. And we were figuring out what is good news mm. for the gangbangers. Is what people call them. To me, they were James and John and mm-hmm. Jeff and right Sammy and actual people. Actual people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We were. What's the good news to Tommy? Mm-hmm. Right. And so people were like, "Have you read, you know, Black Liberation?" Mm-hmm. I was like, "I was born and raised in the church, the Black Church, yeah, mm-hmm. the Black Pentecostal Church, and had mm-hmm. not heard Black wow. Liberation." Wow, wow, that's right? interesting. Because Black Pentecostalism tends to be passive towards political issues and activism in communities. Hmm. And so I I could praise God for a long time, but never have a sense of, of engagement with the issues of the world beyond the church walls. Hmm. It was simply God was going to take us out of here. So we ain't worried about you. Right. Right. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like God's coming to get all these white racist folks. He's going to oh, pay gosh. them back. We're just going to get up out of here when the Holy Spirit you know, shows up, take us all home. So um, I didn't hear about it until I started to actually figure out with a group of other um, outreach workers in Seattle and Tacoma. What is what is the good news to these folks in, the, mm-hmm. in my own community, mm-hmm. these kids who grew up with no families or broken families, mm-hmm. uh, who grew up with abuse, who grew up with poverty? Mm-hmm. What is the good news? 
that's where I picked up James Cone. Wow. So you're mm-hmm. almost similar to me in some ways in terms in of ways, encountering yeah. Yeah. him. Mm-hmm. Did you find... Oh, okay, so I guess... Yeah. What, what did you find helpful immediately in that situation in terms of the kids you were working with? Oh, it was the other side of the gospel that I needed for me mm-hmm. to believe that mm-hmm. Christianity was was more than it was, right? Yeah. yeah. I needed I needed James Cone, yeah. mm-hmm. right? I, mm-hmm. I needed black liberation. Mm-hmm. It connected me to the Afro-Caribbean mu- mm-hmm. movement. It correct, co- connected me to the, um, my Latino um, brothers and sisters. It connected mm-hmm. me to the root of... Mm-hmm of African theology, right? Mm. And so with that connection, I feel like I became a whole person. Wow. Mm. Um, a whole person in Christ. Mm. And though I grew up, see, I grew up not needing to ask white folks for permission because my father and mother gave me a real strong sense of identity. Mm. But I never connected that to the to the scripture. Mm. I connected that to good parenting, mm. right? Right, mm. right, right. right. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Right. So good parenting. Right? <laughs> but then when yeah. I started to read James Cone and started to read black liberationist yeah. I started to see wait this is connected to the text mm, yes and I yeah. started to see different stories in the text than I did mm-hmm. before right Absolutely. and the scripture started to make sense not only to the salvation of my soul mm. but to the salvation of black souls everywhere mm. what you're describing makes me think of when I was like first started visioning like God as female mm-hmm. it just it it gives you new language to now interpret a text and it's a way of opening up the text and I think reading James Cone and James Baldwin. And I read, I pulled this out in Fleshing Freedom. This is another book that um, just gives a whole different language and um, gives you permission to read the text um, experientially and read the text through story. Um, there's something so powerful about it that I don't know you're speaking to. Well, it's, and, it's, and it's, it's, reading, it's reading the story from below. Mm, exactly. Right. Yeah. It's really mm-hmm. the story from below. Yeah. So you get to see the gospel mm. in a way where grace flows to the lowest valley. Mm. And and so growing up we would sing this song and it reaches to the highest mountain and it flows to the lowest valley. Mm. Right. And that God is is the kind of God that has solidarity with those in society mm. who don't mm-hmm. have power. Yeah. 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 And that he God himself and herself speaks to mm. um, where grace is most necessary. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. okay, so I'm going to ask both of you a question. Okay. I'm going to not, not even play devil's advocate. I'm just going to try to represent a voice, a certain voice. This could be kids in our youth group, people at our church, people we encounter everywhere, um, <laughs> who, who you'd say, let's make sure we don't necessarily always refer to God in a masculine way. Um, let's emphasize God's solidarity with the oppressed or the marginalized. Um, why is this important? Why do we have to do that? God's a man. God's king of kings and uh, at the top and, and with the people that help themselves. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just saying how things I hear, things I hear. What, I mean, I, what, what do you think, Macy? Do you want to start? I think it matters in the sense that that language is just so limiting and it doesn't speak true to human experience. Um, Humanity everywhere is experiencing God and they're experiencing God through their culture. They're experiencing God through who they are, their experiences. They're experiencing God through the friendships that they have and the neighborhoods that they have and the food that they eat. And when you start to say that God can only fit into these certain categories and that 
the language that we use for God doesn't matter, then it reduces the experiences that people have of God. And it starts to, um, it can, I think, lead to a one-way view of thinking of God that isn't, isn't necessarily true and honoring to the like divine mystery of God, I would say. Well said. Yeah. Uh, yeah limits yeah. God. Yeah. yeah. Like that. Yeah. Well, and, and to add to that, right. There's this, um, if God is God, then God is God of all creation. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. When we, when we turn God into male only, mm-hmm. then what we're saying is that all creation gets mediated through male bodies. Mm. Right. And there is only one mediator. That, mm. that is the good news. Right? Right. There's only one mediator. Yeah. So we can't all of a sudden turn males into mediators for females or, or rest of creation because then what we're doing is creating another mediator besides mm. Christ mm. as the mediator, right? So, yeah. and, then, and then what we end up doing then is um, bastardizing the Christian experience to create this male, white uh, space Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where the only transcendent beings, Mm. that the only divinity can happen, can be male and white, right? Yeah. And so that is problematic because God has promised to to reveal himself to all creation, Mm. right? Mm. So if God Mm. is in all creation, then white male bodies are not the only ones who experience this transcendent being, (laughs) Snaps. I knew it. It you do that. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it seems, yeah, well, go ahead, please. please. Well, I was just going to say, I also would say it's not honoring to a Trinitarian theology if you're limiting God to being within these parameters. And I think a Trinitarian theology allows us to have, I don't know, a language that emphasizes uh, human relationship and human experience. And that's, I mean, kind of like liberation theology and then black liberation theology, both of them are born out of real experience, real pain. It's, it's, I, I wish I had a, the James Cone quote I'm thinking of in my head. Is it from his memoir? Yeah. Yeah. You can find it later if you want. Yeah. Maybe we'll, we'll try and find it later. But I, he wrote because it was so necessary because it, his experience wasn't being spoken about or represented. There's, there's right. a need within us as people, I think, so to right. for our voices to be heard. And if all you're hearing is this specific kind of God, that's dehumanizing. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. It, it, okay. So I'll I'll represent uh, white men Christians for a second and just say <laughs> I, I grew up. Uh, my grandpa's a Presbyterian pastor. My dad's a Presbyterian pastor. Lots of pastoring and white men theologian types in my family. Mm -hmm. And um, so I have all that. And then I was handed a lot of white theologians, um, C.S. Lewis, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Karl Barth, all, all the list goes on and on. Right. I don't think I was ever handed or communicated a a black theologian growing up, aside from Martin Luther King Jr. Everybody's given that in America, (laughs) Uh, but, but, but not even, that wasn't even sort of handed to me in sort of the Christian context. That was like in history classes right. and stuff mm. like that. Yeah, mm. he's not even um, yeah. kind of connotated in that way of right. theologian. No. Right. Yeah, or, or a pastor for that right. matter. Yeah, and so it, people would say it's like a fish swimming in water. Like you have no idea. You just think this is the norm. Yeah. And even coming to SPU, I didn't have this this sense of racial reconciliation 
um, taught to me at that time, but it was more of a liberal theology than I was used to. And that was refreshing and enlightening at the time. Mm. Um, but I would say, okay, so the crazy thing is that James Cone goes way back. You know what I mean? So, so this isn't, this is, this is a, a writer and a thinker that was starting to speak and teach 40 years ago. And what I'm struck by with him in terms of his lineage is he was so singular in the way that he started to say things like, we don't need white theologians permission or approval Hmm. to say the things that we know we need to say. Hmm. And that just seems like a miracle. Like Hmm. how did he come up with the courage or it seems like some sort of a movement of the Holy Spirit and one that gets underlooked by a lot of people. I think it's Hmm. like we talk about Martin Luther King Jr., but this is something that, um, uh, just sort of popped up. Yeah. Well, see James Cone, um, I think if James Cone had passed away in the early seventies, you would have heard. Mm -hmm. Right. And Dr. Ebony Thurman Marshall makes this point in a recent article she wrote about her mentor, James Cone, when she, uh, basically s- stated that fact, right? Mm-hmm. That um, we love King mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We didn't then. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the, the world did not think it was a, he was a terrorist. Mm-hmm. Um, even black communities were scared to have him. Yeah. Uh, James Cone it was, was, is a threat and has yeah. been a threat, uh, similar to ways in which Martin Luther King was a threat. Mm-hmm. The reason that seminaries and places of Western thought, right, did not embrace King at the time, or uh, Black liberation theology and, and Dr. James Cone in particular, right, is because he is a corrective to the errors that embed themselves in a white supremacist approach to the gospel. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's just mm-hmm. we have to call that out, right? Yes, please. He's a corrective. Yeah. yeah, right. He's attempting to. He's attempting to mediate a different kind of narrative that's based in Israel's true acceptance, uh, true selection by God, Mm. right? That Mm. God chooses this poor community Mm. and and builds solidarity with them and leads them through their their oppression, right? Mm. And then he makes the comparison, James Cone does, to all people who are experiencing societal oppression politically or otherwise, and says, what is God's actions in that in, to, towards those people? Mm-hmm. Well, is it different from what it was to Israel? No, it's no different, he says. He says the good news to those people is, as God was with Israel, so is he with you. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. See, that's the corrective <laughs> to a, um, a Western form of the gospel that, that really had embraced a certain sense of colonial imperialism. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and then more snaps for that. First of all, (laughs) 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 Uh, um, I don't, I can't, I can't get in the head of a, of a white person that wants to hear the words of someone like James Cone and then not listen and refute it. Like I'm somebody that is totally wrecked by that and moved um, and I'm, that's not, that's not like a brag. That's, I'm not trying to like, do a humble brag or something. I'm just trying to say yeah, like, it's a humble brag. Yeah. No. Humble brag. <laughs> I'm so forward thinking. No, I, I'm just trying to say, um, I, it seems like what ha- what happened over time for white Christians in particular was that we wanted to make everything sort of meta and existential and heavenly and salvation based. So, 
God and Jesus in particular, Holy Spirit, don't become things that are prevalent here and now. But these are all things to be understood as metaphor. And, you know, God's God's work is in your heart, not necessarily in the world. Hmm. God's justice is for, you know, our souls and our salvation. And that's what it seems people like James Cohen are, are trying to bring it back to here and now. Yeah, I mean, I think just a simple... Um, I was in a... Um, discussion group where I was leading conversation. And one of the things that came out was how we interpret the word righteousness in scripture Mm -hmm. to the Jewish mind that righteousness, there's a, there's an embedded sense of justice within the, in the word righteous, Mm -hmm. but in the English language in particular, how we, how we interpret the English language of that historic text is righteousness is personal piety. Mm, yes. Right? Mm. And so when one mm, yeah. experiences the blessings of God, it is through personal piety. Mm. So the reason that you're on top of society is because of your personal piety mm. towards Christ. Jeez. Right? And then that's oh. that's blessed by God. Right? Yeah. And so the gospel, <laughs> and this is this is one thing that I love about Cohn in terms of what he informed me about. He said, I I'm I'm kind of paraphrasing totally. him. Yeah. But um the gospel wasn't for black people, it was to black people. Mm. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so what he's doing is saying, wait a minute, right? The, the gospel of liberation, the good news of liberation is that it's not to us. It mm. is for us. Yeah. Right? Mm. And that I don't need mm. a, I don't need Western white thought to adjudicate that for me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't need Western white thought to negotiate that for yeah. me. Mm. Right. That the, the good news is, I can go directly to the God who is of solidarity wow. towards my oppression, right? And yeah. and know that he, God, herself, himself, is adjudicating that on my behalf as mm. one who understands my pain because he was on the cross. Mm. Wow. I, I can hear people standing up and clapping <laughs> and shouting amen to that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. and I, I, I want to ask somebody out there. I know Tally's not the one or Macy's not the one to answer these questions, but <laughs> why is that so hard for some people to hear? You know what I mean? Like, it t- I guess, well, I guess I mean, it, we'd speculate. It's threatening. It's threatening. Because yeah. it requires people who are in positions of power to relinquish that and recognize their, that. Yeah. They have advantages. But it sounds like true it, good news. It sounds like true f- justice. Yeah, I don't know. I'm so confused. <laughs> it's well, hard to give up power, I guess. I mean, yeah. I think the right today, um, after years and uh, 500 years of patriarchy, mm-hmm. I think we're now starting to see um, the what what fear looks like mm. when one hears this kind of gospel. Yes, mm. we're starting to see males fear. Oof. And what it looks like, what form it takes. Right, one has to literally lie to themselves on a regular basis yeah. to overcome that existential experience that you, your narrative that you've lived with, is pretty wrong. Yeah, right? yeah. You have <laughs> right? to lie to yourself. <laughs> you just have to. Yeah, which yeah. takes its toll. Which is the crazy thing. I mean, I don't want to get we, we trigger warnings or something for this episode, but like <laughs> in terms of the violence in America, it's obviously most mostly exclusively done by white men. You know, and and we try to put out warnings for all sorts of people of color, immigrants, uh, you know, whatever the people that we're scared of. It's like, why are we scared of people coming from Central America when we have white men in our country every day, creating 
wreaking violence all over our country. <laughs> uh, and it gets lost, so right? Yeah. The narrative gets lost, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? So what I, what I ask people to do when they're experiencing that's, that certain sense of kind of psychic loss. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, psychic loss. That, that where you are like, because um, what happens is with our identity is, is when there's a loss of identity, mm-hmm. it, it, what do I do? Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, what? What? How do I? How do I find belonging? Because mm-hmm. mm. once one loses identity, they lose a sense of belonging. Yeah. See, to me, this is a very holy moment. Mm-hmm. Because what poor people know better than anybody else is that your identity and belonging are so connected that mm. one must not put their identity on things that are temporary. Yes. Mm. Right. And so, white wow. males are often taught about a permanent sense of identity that cannot be removed, but once they lose it, they don't know what to do. Hmm. And what we ask them to do is don't put your identity and sense of belonging on that which is temporary, but look to the the trend, the God that can transcend all things. Hmm. To the one, see that, now that's good news. That should be good news. It should be good news. It should be good news. This is why James Cone challenges the salvation of whiteness. Hmm. Yes. 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 The salvation of whiteness. <laughs> he challenges it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He says, hmm. can you really serve a white God and experience salvation? Yeah. Hmm. Right. Hmm. And fast forward. There's a recent book out. The title is, can white people be saved? Oh, oh, I haven't heard that one. Good right? question. And it's a bunch <laughs> of authors who are simply asking the question. question. Yeah. Hmm. If you are, if your identity is in whiteness, mm-hmm. right? Not white people, but in whiteness, mm-hmm. this cultural normative narrative mm-hmm. called whiteness. Have you really heeded to the gospel? Mm-hmm. Have you really accepted the good news? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's tough to hear. Yeah, that is that. tough to hear. Yeah, right? that's tough to hear. <laughs> it's tough because it comes with a lot of comforts and familiarity, and it comes with a. Uh, a, a passed on story that you're hoping to live into, I think mm-hmm. that has all sorts of strange imagery connected to who knows what I'm just talking about. Like even just the, 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 the strange Christmas cards we send out every year, like an image <laughs> that we're trying to sell and a lifestyle and something that we think we um, deserve, you know, something that we think is part of our birthright. And mm. and to admit that that is earned through violence or patriarchy or right. whiteness is a yeah. really hard thing to admit. Right. You know. Yeah. I mean, I I, t- I hate to say it, but I hold my blackness loosely. Mm. Mm. Right. That's the one thing this has taught me to do is mm. to hold wow. my blackness loosely. Wow. If I hold it too tight, then it becomes violence to somebody else. Wow. Mm. So I hold it loosely. Do I hold it? Yes, but I hold it loosely. Yeah, oh, I wow. think that goes back to the question I was asking you about, like you feeling like you want to go reconnect with your family and your roots is like, um, I think that was one of the things that people thought maybe in the nineties or something when I was growing up that sounded really <laughs> progressive and smart was to say, I don't see color. Oh and there was, gosh. There, you know, there's a corrective <laughs> on that being like, well, what does that mean? You don't see my culture. You don't see my background. You know, like that sounds really weird. It was, it was meant to sound really fancy, right. but it's, it's actually pretty bad. Yeah. And that's why I hear you saying that. It's like, I actually come from a culture that I'm proud of and that I connect with and that involves a lot of stories and family. And yeah. 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 But I've, I've, we've learned, and I think 
those from oppressive states learn hmm. how to hold, should learn, mm-hmm. I put it that way, should, should learn, learn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> how to hold their identity, cultural norms, um, ethnic identity in such a way that it doesn't do violence to others, right? Wow. That's, that should yeah. be what you learn out of this. Mm. If you don't take that away, then it becomes, it, it, it becomes a, what James Cone in God of the Oppressed talks mm-hmm. about, that reconciliation can't happen, yeah. right? Mm. Because there's no mutuality there. Simply, I have to be on top or you have to be on bottom. Yes. Mm. When it, it, right, we're, right. We just simply trade who's on top and who's on bottom. James Combs talks about as long as so does now Miroslav Volf does this as well. True, uh, and it's power. I mean, powerfully states right the mutuality and reconciliation. Yes, right that there's simply no way for me to be reconciled without mutually ex- en- mm-hmm. engaging either the brokenness of the other or the brokenness in myself. Mm-hmm. Both need to be engaged in order for there to be true reconciliation. Yeah, like, yeah. so well said. That'd be another I mean, episode someday. I mean, yeah. think about that. Like that's <laughs> see, this is where it's trippy, right? This is, this is where it's trippy because it's the it's the prodigal son, it's the broken father and the broken son. Yes. Embracing yes. one another. Yes. Right. Oh, it's wow. Right. So if we, I have to if I have to look at myself as whole to embrace you mm-hmm. and you have to be whole to embrace me, then we never embrace because you're waiting for me not to be broken. But we're never but not you're gonna never be broken. Gonna uh, <laughs> sad. Preacher tally. Preacher tally. That's <laughs> so good. Well, that'll be another episode someday, Miroslav Wolf. Oh. He's so good. And he talks a lot about reconciliation as well in his way. Mm, um, yes. Okay. So I think what's going to happen here, two things. The next thing that's going to happen is a Reuven, a Reuvenation, which we call a Reuvenation. And, uh, he's very, a Reuvenation. It used to be Reuven, Reuven, Ruminations, but now the Reuvenations, which will be a poem. And then what I'm hoping to do is, um, Throw some quotes. We'll just share Tally some quotes and and see what he has to say about James Cone quotes. Her, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm excited. Let's do that. Okay. Let's do All right, Ruben, your poem's ready. It's time. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Uh, so coming up next is a Ruben Ruvenish. <laughs> Everybody, we're about to give a, a, get a Reuvenation. And just so you know, um, Reuven has been preoccupied tonight. And, and rightly so. He's an important person. <laughs> so he he was not necessarily in here for the conversation, even though uh, we know he'll listen several times to the podcast sometime this week. <laughs> but side note, Reuven has written one of our best reviews. And he said, I've not listened to the podcast Nonetheless, a good podcast. <laughs> Something like that. That's apparently. how I feel yeah. about this podcast. <laughs> Even though you're on it and you don't listen, but no, that's great. no, I don't listen. To that's it. great. <laughs> so Reuven was beckoned, and he, uh, well, invited, uh, invited, requested, 
That question. <laughs> I say that in jest. Uh, and here he is with a ruination and a poem, and I'm handing things over to Ruben. Thank you. No, I like I like Beckon. It's like, okay. is he a person? Is he some kind of hybrid? Right. Okay. How well, does you he, like it? I'm gonna keep yeah, using How it. does he inhabit this space? Yes. Does he slither up to this table? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's real. You've, you've heard me talk about interspecies. Uh, <laughs> Okay, Okay, so the poem that I picked, it's not the buttons poem. I'm sorry. Oh, no. (laughs) Someday we'll get the buttons poem. I think, okay, so I actually have been, I mean, just like listening in, but I was in my room twiddling because I was, it's always, I think usually because it's, it's always like, I try not to kind of like, oh, I'm reading a poem that speaks to the topic, but I also don't want to be like, it's just a crazy poem that just put in there. I think the button poem is like very heavy. So, <laughs> so what I'm, br- what I decided on instead is this poem by uh, this uh, author. Uh, her name is Cynthia Dewi Oka. Uh, she was born in Bali, Indonesia. Yeah. So yes, we both share a homeland. Ruven is from Indonesia. I was born in Indonesia. Yes. Uh, but this collection is in English. Uh, it was written in English. It was not translated. Uh, I was actually pretty surprised when I came across this because I, I've i read Indonesian poets in Indonesian. And I this I think this is the first time I've come across like an Indonesian poet. Although like, you know, you don't want to categorize someone mm-hmm. based on where uh, she was born. Uh, but... Oh, yeah, I already know what this is going to say. I've read Indonesian poets yes. before. Okay. I, don't, I don't need to hear this. No, <laughs> so the poem that I brought today is called, the title is, Though We've No Chance of Escape, Encore. Wow. Okay. And I'm, away, going, and I'm going to read it. Okay. So, Though We've No Chance of Escape, Encore by Cynthia Dewi Oka. And does it matter that we do not know what to call ourselves, that finally a house is not a poem, a border is not a stitch in the earth, that beneath, upon our skin, molders centuries of the furious machine, dislocation, amnesia, ransack. The rain guitars us to leaves of grass, along Camden's waterfront. You, me, ghosts of our slanderous past, taking root in potholed sidewalks, the striated glare of passing cars. How heavy the nights anchored to our ribs from which we wrestled our luminous darknesses. How desperately we grope for insinuations of welcome, rock, wire, Graffiti, signs that injury is what happened to make of absence a place. Stumbling toward the clock at the river edge, blinded in sheets of water, we move like twilight. Block after block, howling the murk of all that has lived and drowned in the impossible music of our blood. The knife's narrative will always summon us into the loneliness of history. But today the sky drums, even the brick walls of the penitentiary, 
are anointed. That's the poem. That was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> would you Would you like to make a few comments? I guess, sure, I guess. Okay. Uh, I've been. Oh. It's okay. The, no, the microphones can't hear that. Okay. okay. No. I've been uh, thinking a lot about the idea of futurity, and uh, one word that comes. What do you mean by futurity? Yeah. Uh, what you mean. It's it's I think the idea of like having a future or like a sense of a future. So it's maybe a little bit like the opposite of history. Okay. Hmm. If you want to take like a very crude understanding of history, as like what, what's, what has happened. Hmm. Uh, and I think um, in terms of like, how do we imagine, a, imagine a future? Like that's hmm. why I'm in, really interested in speculative fiction. It's not just because of human alien relationships. <laughs> oh gosh. No, it's, it's, it's because it is a one way of, Imagining a future kind of like from the present. Okay. And uh, there is this uh, scholar, Sadia uh, Hartman, that kind of talks about futurity in terms of, in, of, she calls it critical fabulation. So you tell stories that don't exist like on an objective level, but allows you to like imagine what, what is possible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like one of the reasons why I'm drawn to poetry and as someone who kind of grew up in Indonesia as like a as a minority, like a, we don't get a lot of history. Like there is like a yeah. national history of like Indonesia. Like this is all the things you did. But if you're like a Chinese Indonesian, it's kind of like so. That's why when I came across this poet, I was like very excited. Yes, <laughs> because she's I think uh, her dad was a Chinese Indonesian. Hmm. Uh, but the idea that you get it's not like you know you get to make stuff up because sometimes it's like oh so you get to lie about everything. But you get to kind of like look back at like spots that you feel like, oh, those are empty. And I don't know, like, what are those silences there? And you get to like build hmm. stories hmm. on top of those silences. That's why I'm wow. poetry. It's like, no one's going to ask you, is this thing true? It's like, that's not the question you ask of a mm. poem. Mm. Well said. Mm. <laughs> yes, but that is my rumination for tonight. Ruvination. I'm going to ruminate Ruvination. on that one. Ruvination, you guys. Ruvination. Let's say it right. No, it sounds like I'm trying, trying to, to build a country. Moment. It's a branding moment. <laughs> what? <laughs> it sounds like I'm trying to build a country. Like, ruvination. Oh, like, oh Ruvination? Yeah. No. No. <laughs> I don't think it made like okay. <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you, Ruven. Thank you, Ruven. Setting down his Gosh. microphone. Okay, oh, let me say, let me say what's happening here. Ruben is retreating, <laughs> um, dodging a coffee table, <laughs> picking up a another book, laughing, picking up a phone, a mug, <laughs> uh, patting Matthew on the shoulder, touching his lamp, Ruben, <laughs> and walking away. <laughs> Thank you, Ruben, for your rubination. Uh, okay, um, so when we come back, we're gonna talk to Tally once again about uh, James Cone. We're gonna read some quotes that I think. We want to hear the words of James Cone. And, um, is it our closing section? I think this is it. This, this is, is the, the closing yeah, bits. The closing bits. <laughs> I've never called it that before, but that would be interesting. When we come back. When we come <laughs> the back. Benediction.
right, guys, we're back uh, with we're back. our final bits. <laughs> final bits. We've never called it that before. <laughs> so I, I really did want to... That's something we do on this podcast is read things. I, <laughs> it's I, true. I don't know what else to do. I think we... I, I like the idea of this feeling like we're hanging out with our books and reading quotes that we like. It Maybe sounds like a nice like evening. It sounds like a nice evening to me. But... um. So I would love to. I would love for anybody listening to really hear from James Cone. So most of the quotes I have tonight, um, I was wanting to get like a whole big uh, thing of all the quotes from all the books, but I, I have just a black uh, theology of liberation tonight mostly, and I have a few quotes from the cross and the lynching tree. We'll put all of our everything James will be on the Cone show notes. We'll put lots of quotes on books there <laughs> in, in our show notes, but um. So, um, this is one, here's, here's a quote. So, uh, (laughs) a black theology of liberation was one of his first books that really, um, was provocative. And I just want to say, at least from my understanding in terms of what James Cone has described is this was not just provocative for the white community, but many black theologians as well. And, um, it was revolutionary in the sense that a lot of the things he was proposing was not seeking approval from traditional white theologians is Hmm. the best way that I can say it. And also being antagonistic towards Hmm. the white community, white Christians, white theologians. Hmm. Um, So I'm going to read this. This is at the very beginning. And to me, it's setting up the whole book. This is the rest of the book in my mind is unpacking this statement and I'm going to try to read it slowly because it's heavy, but it's also amazing and beautiful. So he says, and then I want to, I'm hoping to hear Tally's thoughts. (laughs) We'll see what happens. (laughs) Um, Christian theology is a theology of liberation. It is a rational study of the being of God and the world in light of the existential situation of an oppressed community Hmm. relating the forces of liberation to the essence of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. This means that its sole reason for existence, its sole reason for existence, everybody, is to put into ordered speech the meaning of God's activity in the world Mm -hmm. so that the community of the oppressed will recognize that its inner thrust for liberation is not only consistent with the gospel, but is the gospel. Mm -hmm. There can be no Christian theology that is not identified unreservedly with those who are humiliated and abused. Mm. In fact, theology ceases to be theology of the gospel when it fails to arise out of the community of the oppressed. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's, and that's classic mm-hmm. James Cone. Yeah. Right? Classic James Cone. classic James Cone. Because, like, the contextualization mm-hmm. of the gospel is what mm. he's arguing, yes. right? So yes. Christ comes to us in in a way we can see Christ, mm-hmm. Mm. right? Mm. So the incarnation, right? And what he's asking for there is an incarnated gospel. Yes. Mm. We call it today an embodied gospel, mm. right? So mm. how does the gospel show up in people who, and not just, and I love that, that it's just not a gospel that's spoken, but it's a gospel that's embodied. Yes. Mm-hmm. So God is looking for um, 
communities for whom solidarity with them is endemic in the good news. Right? Oh. So it's embedded, embodied in the mm. good news. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think this is, right, just to step back for one second, this is the short side of Western theology. Mm. Mm. Right? This is the short yeah. side of Western yeah. theology. And, and I think that's why it is provocative. Mm. And I think that's why it feels antagonistic. Uh, but really, it is right there in the text. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's in the, it's it's right in the scripture, yeah. right? It's in the story. Um, <clears throat> as if, right, as if God's self couldn't figure out a way to come to the powerful, hmm. right? Yeah. Or God's self couldn't figure out a way, hmm. right, to come to a different people. No, there was a reason God's self chose to come to a people for mm-hmm. whom um, the, they are the they are the occupied mm. of their day. Ooh. Right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Wow. They are the, the occupied of their yeah. day. And so even though, so this is what's scandalous, right, is whenever mm. someone in power in Jesus's day, mm-hmm. and this, this goes to the James Cone text, this is what Christian theology does really well in, an, in the liberationist way. When, when the Roman soldier comes to Jesus and says, can you deal with my daughter? She's sick. Hmm. His faith is a demonstration Hmm. that he is willing to be liberated Hmm. from his reliance upon his power. Wow. To a power that's not found in Rome or his position as a soldier. Oh gosh. (laughs) (laughs) No, but you see, that's, that's the, I wanted to freeze that because that's the exact reason why we need different, communities interpreting the text because mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. approach this yeah. in such a different way. Yeah, yeah. We we cannot, I cannot help but approach it from a white male in power <laughs> in a society that empowers white men. Mm-hmm. And so I will see it entirely different. Um, sure. And I love hearing interpretations that way. I think one of the things even before we were talking about James Cohn is we listened to a liturgist podcast about um, God as mother hmm. and they had Christina Cleveland from Duke on there. Oh, yes. Yeah. And she was talking about um, feeling empowered by seeing God in black Madonnas mm-hmm. and how yes. she told us like parable. I don't know if it was totally true, but now she's on this sort of spiritual yeah, she's journey. Over in Paris. Yes. Yeah, she's been there for like Just a so month. So cool to follow her on Instagram yeah. and watch this happen. But yeah. um, a white Catholic priest comes by and says, you can't, find God in the black Madonna. That's not theologically correct. And Christina Cleveland's like, we're not asking permission anymore. <laughs> you know, I just love that, you know? Yeah. No, and I, um, well, I would love to tell a few stories about me and Christina talking. Tell about a story, oh, you please. Can tell I would stories. love Because she's also an interview dream someday, maybe if we ever do that. <laughs> we have had some great conversation, and she's um, powerfully right when she says we're no longer seeking permission. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The I think that where does that thrust come from? Mm. It comes when you recognize that the gospel is not to you, it's for you. Mm. Oh, right. And so what that's why, a new phrase for me today. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the, love that. the um the what we can't though throw away too quickly mm-hmm. is the role that white supremacy played in getting us t- to see um, or better yet, this is an example from Christina's uh, podcast, right? Yeah. Uh, 
it's white supremacy that gets someone to say you can't see God in something. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's what supremacy yeah. does. It says you can't see God in that, as if that person has the capacity <laughs> to dictate where God shows up. Remember, the oh, God that showed up gosh. in a donkey. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Somehow now he can't no. show up in the black Madonna. Yeah, Are yeah. you serious? Yeah. <laughs> Well said. Gosh. <laughs> One of my favorite, my mentors, a preacher, would say, God spoke through a jackass. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's no way God can't show up in some other entity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. that's what makes God God. That's, yeah, that's... <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, we limit God so we tragically. God so tragically. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Do you have a Christina Cleveland story you want to tell? <laughs> <laughs> well, I th- I'll say this. I think the um, people who, when, when you're Christina Cleveland, right? Yeah. When you're doing this work of reconciliation, any of us, there's mm-hmm. not um, Christina, but when you're doing this work of reconciliation, you're often called in to spaces where white folks are really just looking to get their annual spanking mm. about the segregation that they're walking in. Mm. Segregated Ooh. churches, that, that segregated hurts. neighborhoods. And yeah. so they call in someone to say, you know, they read their James Cone message once a year. Mm-hmm. They get their spanking about being caught up or bound up in white supremacy mm-hmm. and not knowing how to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's one of those things where we, when we leave that space, right, if there's not a place for us to come back to mm-hmm. in ourselves where where we know the good news to us, yeah, right? Yeah. Then we will, we will lose ourselves in that space of trying to save white folks from themselves. Man. Mm. And man, what Dr. Cone does Gosh. right, is say, we can't save white people from themselves. Mm-mm. That's the work they have to do. Mm. Yes. Mm. That, and that's one wow, of the things I think, word. honestly, I'd say I'd learn from Reuven. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it's stuff mm. I've heard before, but he, he constantly reminds us that it's, our job to educate ourselves. Mm-hmm. And he stopped me several times and said, you can look that up yourself. And I'm like, whoa, a good word for me. <laughs> yeah. And he'll say things like, I'm not going to use my energy today educating you on this topic that is easily ready for you on a Google search. You know, Words. Yeah. So <laughs> right? yeah. right? yep. I'm, I'm in Fuller Seminary. I'm mm-hmm. doing my master's degree. I know the professor. We've known each other. I've been to his home. I'm taking his course. And halfway through the course, I raise my hand in class and I say, we're talking about contemporary Christianity and you don't have one woman author or Mm. one author of color. Yikes. Right? I'm going to exercise my consumer capacity as a purchaser of Mm. this education to say that's insufficient. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's insufficient. Yes. And so I'm going to choose to insert another voice into this conversation wow. of contemporary mm-hmm. Christianity. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's Gosh. what it's called. <laughs> Hello, somebody. Yeah, yeah. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. We need an audience for this. Right? Yeah. And I yeah. think that's that's my way of doing my own work. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I can't sit yeah. there and, and let someone spoon feed me yeah. white theologians and talking about Christianity. Contemporary Christianity. You just yeah. can't do it. Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. own work was to retrieve some of the voices of women and persons of color to retrieve their voices from mm-hmm. history, mm-hmm. to retrieve their voices from the intellectual realm and just go, you know what? They belong in this conversation. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah. That's one of the things I was so encouraged by James Cohn's memoir, uh, where he talks about 
he, he talks a lot about how he interrupted his professors. Hmm. Very um, angsty, mm-hmm. very passionate, mm-hmm. and especially on behalf of the black community. Now he is a you know seasoned professor, 60 years old, and he's getting interrupted. Right. Hmm. And, and a gay student is standing up and saying, you don't understand the gay community. Right. You're, you're overlooking us. And I'm like, in the book, I'm like, how is he about to handle this? I don't know. You know, and he says, Jesus is always in solidarity with any oppressed or marginalized group. And so he says, for, for the symbol of what he thinks Jesus is representing, I mean, this is a quote we could look up in the memoir, but he says, Jesus is gay. Jesus is woman. Jesus is essentially with that group. And it was just nice to hear, like, he allowed himself to be challenged by that mm-hmm. student. You know? Right. So th- yeah. I, I get a lot of folks, a lot of conservative Christians who will go, well, wait a minute, that's going too far. Mm-hmm. And I think what you have to understand is what Cone is trying to get to is an aspect of the gospel that is good news to our humanity. Mm. And when we yeah. allow someone to be oppressed for any reason, mm. it is a diminishment of their identity. Mm-hmm. That identity is the Imago Dei. Yes. Mm. Right? So when, no matter what your oppression is, in order to accomplish that oppression, I have to strip from you the Imago Dei. Mm. Wow. So I can't let that happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? I can't, we can't let the Imago Dei be stripped from anybody for any reason. Mm. You may disagree with their their reasons for being oppressed. Mm-hmm. But mm. you can't disagree that that oppression mm. strips them of the Imago Dei. And if that if that Imago Dei is stripped, it is not only violence against them, it's violence against God. Yes. That is James Cone. Wow, that is James Cone. For anyone out there so wondering what Imago Dei is. Oh, image of God. Image of God. Image of God. <laughs> we are all image bearers, you guys. All of us. All of us. All of us are we were created with it. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? We don't earn the Imago Dei. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. given to you by, by God. So it's already there. Yep. I'm going to read another James Cone quote. Scott's got a quote. Um, Scott. Scott's got a quote. I don't have a quote. James Cohn has a quote. Um, Okay, here's just another one to keep us on this track. But it's just another very nicely quick. This this is a quick one. Hot take from James Cohn. Theology can never be neutral Hmm. or fail to take sides on issues related to the plight of the oppressed. Hmm. I don't. I I mean, that's kind of what we've been talking about. That's right. So we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. And then when when. Theology is neutral. Theology is neutered. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah. And and that's what I'm having a hard time with. Like, um, we were getting ready. We we go on a mission trip to Mexico as a as a youth group, and we we're talking. We we often talk about um, God building a house in our heart, and we and we get very metaphorical, and then it's it seems slightly not slightly. It seems inappropriate when we're talking about actually building a literal home for people and that people live without literal homes. And so it seems like a a, a white typical or or maybe just a privileged thing Hmm. to be able to talk about everything theological in metaphor, Hmm. right? you know, Hmm. and not as a literal thing happening for people that they need. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. (sighs) <sighs> yeah. Yeah. it's so hard because once you see it you can't unsee it and then I, be, I feel like I become so critical of everything I'm hearing I'm like oh, <laughs> it's, not, it's not a metaphorical home everybody it's a real home it's people real need home. real homes yeah. people need real yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 yeah. Oh. because then it allows you to kind of do what um, 
what James Cone is begging for, right, is a contextualized gospel. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Not a decontextualized gospel, mm-hmm. right? And so when we metaphorical this text, when we met, when we turn these metaphors over in the hearts of kids, what we're yeah. talking about is a really decontextualized. Yeah. <laughs> and and then I think it for me personally, growing up, it 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 has it, it has kids. I guess this is what I do for a living is work with teens. So it's it. And I can get back, I can access that place in my head mm. as a teenager. It it makes you work really hard to try to figure out what's being said. Sure. Mm-hmm. Like, wait, okay, salvation, um, <coughs> rescue, you know, liberation. This is all a metaphor. And I guess, I mean, I just remember reading certain texts to my kids in the youth group 10 years ago. And you could just tell it was not, they didn't care. Yeah. And even in my head, I was like, how do I make you care? I, I, I can hear how you're hearing this. And, and in that sense, I don't even care. But if this has immediate impact for your life, then of course. But if it's like, oh, someday when you die and you're, you're, you're secure and hmm. it's like, great, I'll just go keep my, live my life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I ask people to read like Philippians and Colossians. I learned this from Dr. Ray Bakke many years ago. Oh, Ray Bakke. Right. Who <laughs> asked us to yeah. look at the, the way God is um, kind of articulated to the co- to the church at Colossae mm-hmm. versus the church at Philippi, mm-hmm. right? And the outcome of that exercise is to show you that God is, God is overall, right, when you're the least powerful. Mm. Mm-hmm. When you're the most powerful, God is beneath all. Mm. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So isn't that message, an amazing right? way to of saying kids it? who have more than what they really yeah. need? Yeah. Is that God is the least of mm, all, yeah. beneath all, and the only way you're going to reach Him is to disconnect yourself and disavow mm. all the things you own, rich, no, young ruler, no. right? Yeah. All Hard. the things mm. you own, yes, right? To see God as the least of these, and mm. then yes. when you do that, when you go to Mexico, you see God's face because you're looking for God in the least of these, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. do, I'm going to read one thing. Do you have okay. something to read? Uh, maybe, but you can read. This, this kind of goes like with 10. what we're talking about. <laughs> this kind of goes what we're talking about. He says the Jesus event in the 20th century. This is James Cone again. The Jesus event in the 20th century America is a black event. That is an event of liberation taking place in the black community, in which blacks recognize that it is incumbent upon them to throw off the chains of white oppression by whatever means they regard as suitable. Hmm. Um. Do you want to read your quote? Scary. That brings Scary. that brings up a question I want to ask. Well, then ask the question. Okay, I think this is a, a core <laughs> James Cone thing that I've learned this year, and I'll just read the last sentence again. It's been incumbent upon them to throw off the chains of white oppression by whatever means they regard as suitable. So I think that was one of the things that's challenging and maybe even more challenging today because it doesn't seem like we've made a lot of progress on this, hmm. is... is what you said earlier about like white theologians, white people in power adjudicating the methods of the black community. Mm -hmm. And, um, he would have said, people would have said to Malcolm X or James Cone and others, uh, what you're proposing is black supremacy. It's just saying we're, we're, I mean, I remember hearing you talk about this at UPC is equity. We're just accessing for equal Mm -hmm. rights and equal pay, whatever, you know, and to, to a white ear, it sounds like, black supremacy Hmm. right yeah (laughs) so even when you ask right equity being being me what i need 
I receive. Mm-hmm. I don't get mm-hmm. anything more than I need. Right. right? I, I get what I need. That's <laughs> equity. What's powerful is when you're watching television and you go to work after watching a, a young black kid get pushed around by the police, right? Mm-hmm. You'll hear folks start to sp- explain what the black kid should have done, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You hear what the what that black body should have done in order to make it through. We we never stop and go. How do I not white splain mm-hmm. or mansplain right yes. that space? And what the the focus of that quote mm-hmm. is not so much for me on the kind of any means necessary part, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but on the the part that I focus on is the means that I find necessary. Oh, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, right? yes, yes. Right? It's the means I find necessary so that I, as the person who is fearful behind the wheel when I get pulled over, mm-hmm. not knowing what that... You you can't tell me as someone who's never been in the in a brown body how to manage how to how to kind of mediate that opportunity mm-hmm. and and when it doesn't work out right you go well you should have done you've never been in a brown body and heard yeah. the stories of lynching from the child yes mm-hmm. you've mm-hmm. never heard the stories and seen the stories of your father being treated poorly simply because he walked in the restaurant. You've never seen that. Mm-hmm. You've mm-hmm. never experienced that, that diminishment, that marginalization, how it makes the hairs on your head stand up, right? Mm-hmm. They're just, you've never experienced that. So why would you tell me the means I need to survive when you've never been in my survival? Oh, <sighs> yes. So James Cone is great at saying that because literally Jesus does that. Yeah, right? yeah. Jesus mm-hmm. does that. Notice how Jesus doesn't dictate to so many people in the text, he doesn't dictate hmm. their conversation. He asks them questions hmm. to discover what questions. are the means of salvation that they're finding hmm. so that he can then have solidarity with their transformation. Wow. <laughs> yes. This is more sermons from Tally. Oh, I'm fired up right, here. Yes. Absolutely. It's the word of God. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Did you have something you want to read from the memoir? Yeah. I mean, okay. So this just makes me think of when I was studying reconciliation, we were about, I don't know, probably eight weeks in. And I think I was feeling a little desolate as a soul, if that makes sense. I was just like a little overwhelmed and I'm in college. So I'm also overwhelmed about that. (laughs) It's just like, (laughs) Oh my gosh. And I remember, uh, Dr. V, we had a reading on imagination and moral imagination and how powerful that is and how important that the work of imagination is. Um, in terms of reconciliation. And so reading this, James Code made me think of that. And this is Scott's book. You have so many check marks. I do. So many exclamation marks. It's so funny. Um, Okay. So this uh, is from his memoir. Um, Theology is not a philosophy. It is not primarily rational language and thus cannot answer the question of theodicy, which philosophers have wrestled with for centuries. Theology is symbolic language language about the imagination which seeks to comprehend what is beyond comprehension. Theology is not anti, anti-rational, but, is, but it is non-rational, transcending the world of rational discourse and pointing, pointing to a realm of reality that can only be grasped by means of the imagination. That was what Reinhold Niebuhr said. One should not talk about the ultimate reality without imagination. And why the poet Wallace Stevens said, God and the imagination are one. 
Black liberation theology strives to open a world in which black people's dignity is recognized. So can we just make a connection between the poem we heard, Mm -hmm. the futurist of the poem, right? Yeah. Ruben's not here, but we're talking about his poem. Because really the moral imagination Mm -hmm. is that the God of scripture Mm-hmm. Right, speaks into a transformation or a what is becoming. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. I think where white theologians struggle is a preservation of what was mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. have a tough time imagining, imagining a something God different that is becoming. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't. Right. God is what is preserved, not God is what mm-hmm. is becoming. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's why I love. I I have read that text before, <laughs> and I love that because it is an artic- powerful articulation, which James Cone does often. Powerful, powerful articulation, <laughs> right? And of course, he's um, for those who don't know, James Cone and Reinhold Niebuhr. You're almost reading the same person at certain times because yeah, he yeah. definitely loved Niebuhr, right? Yeah, and, even though he has cr- criticisms of Niebuhr, yeah, <laughs> but he yeah, loves Niebuhr. Well yeah. read Niebuhr. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, I think this keeps. The church, this 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 text that that quote right there, mm-hmm. I would say is the is the sickness mm-hmm. of um, white evangelicals. Yeah, mm, yeah. And, and here's why. Here's why I think it's the sickness of white evangelicals. It is because it prevents them from engaging not only in the development of their moral imagination, mm-hmm. but it goes back to what you said about being desolate. Mm-hmm. The desolation you experienced, right, is actually found in scripture time and time again. Hmm. Whenever the goat, they they prayed for the sins to, right, they put all the sins on the goat, Mm -hmm. and then the goat would go out into a desolate place Hmm. where the sins would go Hmm. on the goat. So this is that idea of the sacrificial lamb, Hmm. right? Hmm. Well, all of us need to experience that desolation in order for us to become. Mm -hmm. If we never go through that experience of desolation, then the sins remain with us. In other Mm. words, the lies of our identity remain Mm. with us. The lies of white supremacy remain with us. The lies of whatever remain with us. We, you had to go through that desolation, <laughs> right? You had to go through that place of desolation yeah. so that you could be filled up mm. with what is becoming yeah. in you. Yes. Mm. What yes. is becoming yes. in you. That's why his theology, black liberation theology, is so powerful hmm. because it carries the capacity for transformed imaginations yeah. and renewed capacity in the Christian. Hmm. Without that, the Christian stays an artifact. Oh, hmm. oh. Right. Wow, yeah. That's scary. That we is... don't want to stay an artifact, you know? Gosh. That's not good. <laughs> so, yeah. That's the right language. That's the right language we need. Futuring. You know, we need to, this is, this is <laughs> new stuff for me tonight even, you know? In terms yeah. of this conversation, did you have a scripture you wanted to read? I felt like you had something pulled up. Well, there. I just, I just, I reminded myself, <laughs> yeah. right? Okay. When you were she was yeah. reading that text, I was like, desolation. Oh my gosh, right? Yes. Yeah. There's like 200 texts on yeah. desolation, right? And mm-hmm. it is a powerful, additionally, right? Without that desolation, mm-hmm. without that experience of what God can become mm-hmm. in us, we no longer, we, 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 not only are we artifacts, but we're artifacts in such a way that keep us being, uh, keep us from being publicly engaged in mm. the marketplace mm. of ideas. Yeah, mm. right. Because we won't engage society in a way that is transformative because we're constantly trying to preserve mm. a narrative. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. And and I I think 
um, this is an explanation, not an excuse. I, I, this and it's a, it's a hypothesis. <laughs> it's it's to it's to say that um, the psychological landscape of all this stuff is what you're saying, some sort of preservation of a different type of dream. So Martin Luther King has a dream. I think white folks from a very early age are handed a very, uh, you could call it a beautiful dream of what their lives could be and what they're expecting of their lives. And when mm, that's interrupted, mm, yeah. it feels so threatening. Right. Uh, and and um, I don't know, like I guess one of the things I've tr- been trying to learn or hear from people like James Cone and others is um, it may take a more aggressive approach to wake white people up than sort of a soft nudging, you know, mm-hmm. and and maybe maybe the, well I hopefully know. I don't know I think maybe <laughs> maybe maybe that's the best bet. I mean, I guess thinking about um, I, I my understanding was that James Cone or I guess I guess Malcolm X especially his main audience was black folks. James Cone was probably talking to Christians primarily, but um, I guess it, it's on. The, the it's 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 the responsibility of white leaders white male leaders in particular i think to be a little harsher i think i think okay i could go i, I could go on and on about this <laughs> stuff because obviously i've learned so much this year but in in james cone's uh cross in the lynching tree he essentially um talks about how major theologians were addressing the problem of lynching at the time and so he especially does specifically talks about Reinhold Niebuhr for a whole chapter and has all these quotes and passages where Reinhold Niebuhr was active, asked about lynching and racism in the mm-hmm. country and essentially says the same thing that we keep hearing from a lot of white Christian leaders today, which is this oppressed community, at that time black people being lynched, but put whatever oppressed community currently is um, experiencing that now, um, they're going to need to be patient while us white folks figure things out. So we're going to get there, but it's going to take us some time. And then he, you know, juxtaposes that with all sorts of, you know, news clips and headlines about the lynchings that are happening. People are dying. It's like, and you're asking us to be patient, right? you know? And, and so here's (laughs) this sort of ridiculous. And Reinhold Niebuhr is interesting because he's sort of a a white progressive (laughs) figure of the time. So he's not like a conservative or I don't know how you want to use those words, but um, even he seems, for, in James Cohn's eyes, to have failed in a lot of ways in that sense. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, Paulo Freire. Yeah, yeah. He's the forward to um, God of the Oppressed mm. in, the, in the anniversary edition, and mm. he essentially says, um, when reconciliation is talked about by people in power, it simply is done to create a passivity yes. in mm. the mm. oppressed to yes. accept the timing of the oppressor's freedom. Wow. So when the oppressor's ready to be delivered, then we have to wait, right? And I can't tell you growing up, I heard that from black preachers. Oh, wow. See, isn't that interesting? Yes, right. Mm. And while I completely agree that reconciliation is God's act in the world, it's God's instantiation, God initiates, I don't think God's waiting to. Right. <laughs> God wants that to happen right now. Like, God has been like, like when you when you guys ready to do this? Like, you know, yeah. It's kind of like since Christmas is coming up, you're like, well, okay, 
I'm ready to give you gifts, but I'm just going to wait yeah. for a whole year. Mm. Mm. <laughs> no, God yeah. is constantly looking to reconcile. Mm. Doesn't just happen at Christmas. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, you got to wait to Christmas. Why yeah. evangelicalism is, let's just wait until the mm. oppressors get ready. Until then, wow. continue walking Gosh. in your oppression and continue walking in your subjugation oh. and continue walking. And, and then I love this. Love your enemy. Love your enemy. Oh, but gosh. the oppressor never has to love his enemy. Right. <laughs> right. I know. Isn't that? It's it's maddening. Once it's you start maddening. thinking of it that way. So that uh, this will be one of the last quotes I read because this is, this is right on point. But it says, Bonhoeffer said, this, is, this is just speaks to the white Christian theologian. <laughs> Christian type. Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, so Bonhoeffer writes this at the beginning of Call of Discipleship, Cost of Discipleship. Uh, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Suffering is the badge of true discipleship. And then Cohn says, but is it appropriate to speak the same words to the oppressed? Hmm. So, so it's this thing of like uh, saying, uh, hey, oh, you, need to, you need to, God calls you to come die and give away your life and you need to be humble. And you know, it's like, but we're not going to do that. But you need to do that. <laughs> you know, it's so weird. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so, and so I work with a lot of millennials, right? <laughs> I'm just telling you that they don't, they don't get that hmm. crap. Like wow. They, <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> Say more, right, please. Because they realize they have a systemic and historical view yeah. that says, wait a minute. So you stole the land. Hmm. You killed for the land. You, your germs infected the land. Hmm. And now that you own the land... You're so holy now that you don't have to suffer. All the rest of us need to suffer as a form of purification. Wow. And, and that's our our redemption? Yeah. Like, why don't we just do what you did? We'll steal the land. We'll infect the land. Yeah. <laughs> we'll yeah. take the land. And then we'll take the holy position that you need to wait until your time of purification oh. to suffering. Wait, so, so you say millennials generally get that? Yeah, I, re- I come across now they're obviously coming from, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, uh, brown and black communities. Yeah, more and so, more so. Indigenous communities yeah. are really thinking this way. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. There's wow. a lot of indigenous work going huh. on right now. Huh. And it's dope work. It's, yeah. it's redefining, really, not redefining the text. It's looking at the text in such a way that it's transforming how mm. I see it. For yeah. Sure. Mm. Wow. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I feel like we're just warming up. This always happens. This does always Gosh, happen. Gosh, we have to do like a part two with Tally. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, that's a thing. Yeah. We do part two with uh, no, part, part two, two We have to. Um, I, okay, let me, can I ask one question, then you do the benediction? Sure. Okay. Do you, uh, do you have that? Yeah. It's a really short little tiny. Okay, this is a this is a crazy question. I'm not I'm not expecting that you have all the answers, Tally. But <laughs> okay, so we are two white podcast hosts, white Christian leaders, whatever you want to call it, and, and two uh, friends and, and two friends, friends, yeah, and friends with you. Yep. But uh, but I'm saying sort of like what you've alluded to earlier about s- certain white institutions or groups saying we need to invite somebody in to give us our annual spanking. Sure. How do we make sure conversations like this, whether it's reading James Cone, learning about James Cone, talking to you, how do we make sure it's not just this sort of, we did that and now we can move on? Right. Uh, like, I, it's, it's, it's a little, um, hmm. I don't know. What, what, do you have, what, what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to let um, the same reality that brought you to this place of reading James Cone this mm-hmm. year has to be the same reality, the same influence, the same thrust, right? Mm. 
not to put this in like discipleship terms, but I think Please. you really have to let the Holy Spirit continue to disciple you in this way mm-hmm. and to make it, it will become a new norm yes. for mm-hmm. you, a new norm. And the thing about norms in scripture is the metaphor of the wineskin is very important. That if you allow the new wine to continue to pour into you, you'll continually have to do a new wineskin. Mm-hmm. Right? In other mm-hmm. words, Good your new norm will become this constant revelation mm. yeah. that allows for you to go, I don't know of any other way yeah. but then to right, walk new. in this way. Yeah. Right. And I think that's what's powerful. Mm. Regardless of your 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 anyone's ethnicity or race, which is really just right, a figment of man's imagination. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We pour all the power into it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have to determine how much power goes into your whiteness. Mm. Wow. A challenge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And that's, what, that's where we're all disciples. <laughs> I yeah. have to figure out how much power goes into my maleness. Mm-hmm. 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 Right. Every day I have to make that my prayer. Lord, do not let my maleness be that which dictates your acts of redemption in the world. Mm. Wow. But let me receive of you what it's like to be influenced by the female reality mm. so much so that I become sensitive in ways that you're working that are not normative to my male being. Wow. <laughs> Only then can I be made anew. Mm. Yes. So much good stuff for I'm telling. Touch it up. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Gosh. I I I jokingly I wanna add like a track, like a like a audience track being like, oh, woo, woo, you know? <laughs> but it would be inappropriate, you know, a- after the fact when I'm editing on it, like people clapping and cheering for Talia. <laughs> oh, I appreciate yeah. it. No, I appreciate being with you guys. You oh, guys this is know. so good. Yeah. Um, okay, I'll close so, the night with a short, short poem. Yes. Prayer. So we just say uh, thank you to Tally for being here. This has been so fun. Big thank you to Tally yeah. for being here. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Uh, This is a prayer from Judy Ford. Uh, Dear Heavenly One, help me accept love as as it is given, even though it may not come in the package I requested. Amen. Uh, See you next week, everybody. (laughs) Goodbye. My dear brother James Cone, words fail. Any language falls short. Yes, he was a world historical figure in contemporary theology, no doubt about that. Towering prophetic figure engaging in his mighty critiques and indictment of contemporary Christendom from the vantage point of the least of these, no doubt about that. But all I think he would want us to view him through the lens of the cross and the blood at the foot of that cross. So I want to begin with an acknowledgement that James Cone was an exemplary figure in a tradition of a people who've been traumatized for 400 years but taught the world so much about healing, terrorized for 400 years and taught the world so much about freedom, hated for 400 years and taught the world so much about love and how to love. James Cone was a love warrior with an intellectual twist rooted in gut bucket Jim Crow Arkansas but ended up at the top of the theological world 
but was never seduced by the idols of the world. That's who we talking about. That's who's in that coffin right there. And oh, he loved us so. And I loved him so I'd take a bullet for him. And he'd take a bullet for me even as we were dancing to get out of the way because we wanted to be together. But there's no James Cone without Lucy and Charlie. You're absolutely right, Brother Chris. You turn to that last paragraph of acknowledgments in his great cross and the lynching tree, a text that will last for as long as there's an American empire shot through with white supremacy and predatory capitalism and homophobia and transphobia and patriarchy too. That's the kind of prophetic voice we're talking about. My brother Wheelock understands that. But what is he saying in that acknowledgement? He says, I got to acknowledge Lucy. I got to acknowledge Charlie because their amazing love and their wonderful humor created a happy home and a happy home that kept us from hating anybody. That's an echo of Emmett Till's mother. I don't have a minute to hate our pursuit justice for the rest of my life. That's an echo of John Coltrane's Love Supreme. It's an echo of Toni Morrison's Beloved. It's an echo of the love-soaked essays of James Baldwin. James Cone stands in a tradition of a people, a great people, with a grand tradition. An AME church there, the Macedonian AME church there on the Jim Crow side, the chocolate side of Beard in Arkansas, taught that little Negro genius something. He was already fortified before he got to Union Theological Seminary. He had been shaped, he had been molded, he had been challenged, he had been unquestioned, and he stood tall, he stood tall, he said, I've got something to say to the world. And I don't say it on my own. I don't say it on my own. What do I say? Oh, like the Isley Brothers caravan of love, a falling in love with truth and the condition of truth is always to allow suffering to speak. A falling in love with goodness, keeping track of the evil. He begins with white supremacy. He wrestles with white supremacy, but he always connected it to others, even if it took him a little while to get there. How come? Because we got too many black folk loving everybody but black people. He said, I'm going to start with black people. Then I'm going to get to the others. Nothing wrong with that. That's who he was, but he had been shaped already by his father. Turn to page 21 in his autobiography. My soul looks back and Charlie told him, let me tell you something, James. He said, you see, I'll never allow your mother to work in the White House, so I know about sexual violation. I know about harassment. I don't have that much money. I'm only making $1,000 a year, but I'm going out to the woods every day, and I'm not accepting a penny. Let me tell you something, little James. Don't you ever sell your integrity. Don't you ever allow anybody to buy your integrity. You stand tall even if you broke us the Ten Commandments financially because you got a joy that the world didn't give you and the world can't take away. That's exactly what it said. So when he talked about the Charlie Cone inside of me, that's the Sankofa that our black nationalist brothers and sisters understand. 
You better not stand up and move forward till you connect it to the best of what has gone into you. Because the highest standards have been set by those who were dead, we just the quick. The question is, will our lives in any way be connected to the afterlife of our brother Cone as he moves on the other side of the Jordan? And I'm gonna talk, well, I know you're gonna talk about the other side of the Jordan, no brother. Because <laughs> James Cole wasn't just an academic theologian. He lived life or death. His theology was grounded in the cry of black blood, the wailing from black suffering, the moans and groans of black hurt and black pain, and somehow trying to convince us not just to have the courage, but the fortitude. The Nazi soldier can be courageous and still be a thug. Fortitude connects magnanimity and greatness of character. That's what we look at when we see James Cone. And all I want to tell the children of Michael, Charlie, and Crystal, and Robin, that your father was a great man based on biblical criteria. He served, he sacrificed for the least of these. He tried to hold up the blood-stained banner with a level of spiritual nobility and moral royalty already enacted by Lucy, already enacted by Charlie, already enacted by the best of his church. And by the time he began to interact with vanilla brothers and sisters, he was misunderstood, he was misconstrued just because he's mad and enraged because he's focusing on a sin doesn't make him a hater. He had charitable Christian hatred. He hated the sin but still tried to love the sinner. And the problem is so, so easy to look at black folk, how come they so mad? How come they so angry? Well, if your children would treat it that way, if your children going to jail, your children dealing with decrepit education, you'd be upset. You don't expect us to be upset. James Cone said, let me tell you something right now. He said, I'm not one of those Negroes who's afraid and scared and intimidated. I'm going to tell you the truth. And I'm going to talk about the suffering of black people. And he always acknowledged the prophetic white brothers and sisters like Donald Shriver, Tom Driver, Christopher Morse, William Horned and his thesis advisor, and Lester Scherer and Brother Ellsberg, Brother Ellsberg, any white brother and sister who approached him as a human being had a chance to experience his tenderness. Brother Johnson knows what I'm talking about. Experience his sweetness, but he was still on fire. And that's what we need these days. We need the spirit of the tradition that produced a James Cone in the younger generation, not just on fire, but putting love and justice at the center of it. And most importantly, willing to take a risk. His discipline, unbelievable. Black power and theology, 69. Here comes the black theology, liberation in 70. Here comes the spirit in the blues in 72. Here comes God of the oppressor in 75. Gaywood Wilmore and him, I can, I can see him right now putting together black theology, documentary history. Here comes my soul looks back. Here comes for my people. Here comes speaking the truth. Here comes Martin and Malcolm. Christians, if you don't understand the genius of Malcolm X, go back to the cross. 
Go back to the cross. That's what he was telling us. Mark really, Thomas knows what I'm talking about. That's what it is to be on fire. He's still on fire in the coffin. It's just that the worm's gonna get his body, but his spirit will be strong. It will be transfigured. It will be transformed. We will never forget our brother. Let's live our lives in such a way that we remain in the same tradition our brother Cone does. 